Yeah, go ahead and, uh, if you do have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. We've been in a series called The Prophet, um, and we've been looking at specifically Isaiah, I think, one of the easier prophets to um, kind of wrap our head around, and I've been told that I need to set a timer, so here we go. Yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, so we're in Isaiah 11, uh, actually Isaiah 10:33, and then we're going to move into Isaiah um, 11. And what I want you guys to do um, before we read the scriptures, I know that if you're anything like me, there's so many different voices, so much input in your life. I feel like we're like the generation of input. Um, so much coming at us through whether it's so, or the social media apps that we have or even the game apps that we have or um, what we watch on, on TV or the people in our lives or the places that we shop or the cars that we drive. All of everything has input into our lives. Um, and what I want to do before we come to the scriptures, because I, I really count uh, the Bible as a sacred text we do at Bridgetown, um, I just want to encourage you to just be quiet, um, to, to just be silent. So um, we're gonna do that. Uh, God, we're here to hear from you. Um, we could be a thousand other places, and it's no use for t- trying to be in more than one place at a time, so we're here right now. So where we're, this is where we are. And so we're just gonna be silent before you. Would you prepare our hearts? We're just gonna be quiet. God, we've set this time aside a sacred space for you to move, for you to speak. Amen. Um, I want you guys, you can do whatever you want, however it works. I'm gonna read this passage that we're gonna be in. It's a little bit longer, and um, sometimes closing your eyes is the best way to see things. So um, I would encourage you, if you want to, maybe close your eyes, um, kind of imagine what's going on. The prophets are very um, imaginative. Um, and I'm gonna, read, I'm gonna read this passage in its entirety. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33 says this, see the Lord Yahweh Almighty. He will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an ax. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge of the fear and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant 
will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will not harm or destroy. On all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And in his resting, and his resting place will be glorious. What an incredible passage. As the New Testament church, we are um, commended uh, by its authors um, to read the scriptures out loud, to allow them to wash over us, to contemplate them, to think on them. And um, what we just read is, is if you're wondering, it's a beautiful vision of what the kingdom of God will be like one day. Did you notice some of the, the imagery, some of the, the, even the contradictions in it, that there's a wolf that's gonna live with a lamb? That's what the kingdom of God is like. There's these, these images. It's incredible. Um, now, I don't, I don't know if you're like me. I'm kind of like a news junkie. I love the news. I have like this, I don't have Instagram or Twitter or anything fun on my phone, but I have a news app. So um, the news app is like, is like when I'm bored, I'm like, I'll, I'll like refresh it. You do this to your app sometimes. You're like, I checked this like three seconds ago, but maybe there's something new, you know? So I'm going back to it all the time, and I, I don't know how much attention you guys paid um, to the news when ISIS was in control of Palmyra, Syria. I don't know if you guys saw this. This is uh, not too long ago. I could hardly read the news reports. I was so horrified um, by this, but here's a photo of um, some ancient ruins in Palmyra. Um, they had all kinds of ruins like this and statues, you know, from like BC time, like thousands and thousands of years ago that are still standing. Incredible historic monuments for the modern world, just amazing stuff. Um, and then ISIS showed up, and here's the photo after of that same place. Like, like that, just snuffed out, history is gone. Just gone. There's just no coming back from that. Like, you know, it's just, it, it will never be there. Our kids will never see, you know, they have pictures. You can't go visit that place anymore. It's just nothing. Um, or, or imagine this. Imagine, how, you guys have been to Timbers games, although you're not at one, the one tonight, but um, you've been to Timbers games, some of you probably, and you see the guy who, um, he, you know, every time they score, he cuts like a slab of tree off, you know, and they get to raise it. I don't really, I like soccer, but I'm not crazy about soccer, so I, I, I've heard uh, that he does this. Um, imagine him, he takes a trip down to the Redwoods, um, these incredible historic uh, trees, and he just gets a little bit wild with the chainsaw. Like, Timber Joey, come on, man. Um, but he gets a little bit crazy, he starts cutting down the Redwoods, right? Like, what? like what's going on? He's just cutting them down, um, just destroying them. You know, there's like a league to protect these trees that was started way back in 1918. Um, they're symbols of freedom, the wildness of the West, and just in an instant, just they're gone. Just tri- when a tree gets cut down, it's just, it's over. You just don't come back from, from that. You know, like, that's it. There's no more. That, that, it's gonna maybe sit like that for, you know, however many years, and it's gonna decompose. The hope of that mighty tree ever standing again is zero. There's no hope. Um, now, if you remember from last week, we're talking kind of about what, what a prophet is, what a prophet does. Um, and uh, the job of a prophet is really to take the heart of God They take the heart of God and they make it known to the people, to the people of Israel in this case, and also to us today. They wax and they wane between these three messages. Accusation, it's their first message, which is Israel, you guys are, you're doing this again. 
mainly it kind of revolves around idolatry, breaking the covenant with God. This is what you guys are doing. You're falling back into the same old sin over and over and over again. The, sec- the second message that they, um, that they give is, is warning. They warn Israel, hey, listen, you need to turn back to Yahweh. If you don't, this bad thing's gonna happen. God's gonna be upset with you or whatever. Um, and then lastly, their third message is hope. It's hope. Um, chapter one from last week in Isaiah um, was about God warning Israel, accusing Israel of their sin. And this week in chapter 11, um, like a breath of fresh air, God is talking about hope again. Hope that's been lost and hope that will be regained. So what does it mean to lose hope? I think that all of these images that we just looked at, what they're grabbing at is what does it mean to lose hope? I think a stump symbolizes it perfectly. It's a judgment, it's a sentence that you can't come back from. It's a moment that from, from that moment on, everything is changed. Um, because in, in verse 33 and 34, what is God doing? Go ahead and look back, back, back down at your Bibles. Um, verse 33 of chapter 10, he says this, See the Lord, the Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an ax. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. What is he doing? He's judging the nations. In this very like poetic, imaginary way, he's judging the nations. The, pic- the picture that we're getting is that Israel is like a forest, and, and, but that forest is going to be cut down. And not long actually after uh, this, Jerusalem and every major city within Israel is destroyed. The vast uh, population of Israel now shifted to Babylon. They've lost their homes. Israel has lost the hope of ever returning as a nation. Uh, They've forgotten about, just forget about being prosperous. We're just trying to survive. They're losing their resources, their women and children. They're losing their homes. Losing hope is when you believe that things will be this way forever, period. Things will be this way forever. And, and I don't know where you came from tonight, and you're probably not in the same place as Israel, um, but have you ever lost hope? Maybe you're here tonight and you're like, I'm, I'm in it, I have lost hope. My hope is gone. Have you ever lost hope? It's not too hard uh, of a place to find yourself in, in this world that we inhabit. Lost hope. But how this passage then functions, not only in Israel's life, but also in our lives, it functions like a light beam, like the silver lining becomes a beam breaking through the clouds and describing the kind of hope that Israel can have with confidence. That their change is on the horizon, they can just see it. And to make this vision clear, notice something. Isaiah doesn't hand out facts like, oh, the weather is you know, 65 degrees with like a 30% chance of rain. He's not like, that's not how it reads, right? He doesn't give us a mathematic formula, right? Like Israel plus Ashtoreth poles equals punishment or something like that. Like, that's not what we're finding. He, he actually uses metaphor and poetry, Metaphor and poetry. I want to talk a little bit about metaphor and poetry tonight. Now, I don't know about you um, or, or when the last time you sat down to read a poetry anthology was. 7 p.m., the percentage is probably pretty high. You guys are reading poetry all over the place. Um, or how familiar you guys tonight here are um, with the importance of poetry in our lives. Um, it's something that's it's a deep passion of mine. Um, But there are reasons why the prophets use poetry. 
poetry is powerful. Here's just a few reasons why they use poetry. The first reason is the prophets use poetry because of its earthiness. Poetry is earthy. Because poetry, what it does, good poetry, makes you reimagine the objects and the people around you in a way that fills you with wonder again. All of a sudden, you read poetry, I don't know, maybe you don't, but when you read poetry, you read it, and it's reimagining these objects, these very normal things that you live around, and it makes you wonder about the world again. Poetry is often thought of as a way to get beyond the world, to reach up to the ineffable, to get to God somehow. But often I have found that poetry actually roots us in the world that we inhabit by using images from the environment around us. This is what poetry does. And what Isaiah is doing is rather than taking you on this interstellar cruise through the heavenlies to understand the ins and outs of God, he causes you to reach out to the very material and real world around you to apprehend who God is. If you wanna know who God is, you, got, you reach around you. Well, this, is, this is weird. What is, what is heaven like? What is the kingdom of God like? It's like food. It's like sleeping. It's like playing. It's a life without worry. It's like the space that you inhabit now, but it's perfected. This is so powerful. Poetry, through Isaiah, Isaiah 11, it roots us in this world by using the objects around us. Secondly, um, the prophets use poetry and metaphor so that anyone can understand, because everyone has an imagination. All of you have an imagination. We get to be kids again. You don't have to know Greek to understand an image. You don't have to take a seminary course to know what a branch is, right? Um, The only prerequisite to understanding the message of the prophet is that you become like a kid again and use your imagination. Children live in their imagination. And the prophet draws us back to that place that we all once inhabited. We get to be kids again. And lastly, the prophet also, uh, the prophets also utilize imagination because our imaginations are inroads to our hearts and our desires. They're direct connections to what we long for. Poetry can shape our love. Imagery and poetry move our hearts. They start with beauty. They say, look at this beautiful thing, and they move us to obedience. And this is what Isaiah is doing. There's a great quote from a famous novel where one character says to another, he says this, if you want people to build a ship, don't show them where to get the supplies and how to build the ship and what the directions are. Show them the immense glory of the sea. Isn't that true? Show them the immense glory of the sea. They'll build the ship. What Isaiah is doing is he's showing us the immensity of the sea and saying, isn't that beautiful? Come and get it. Isn't that beautiful? Come and get it. Because the truth is that as humans, we are more often moved than convinced. Isn't that true? Most of you make your, desire, your, your decisions not because one day you woke up and you thought differently and said, oh, I'm not gonna do this. No, you were moved in a direction. We're for, more often moved than we are convinced. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Frederick Buchner, in his book, Telling the Truth, he says this, prophets put words to both the wonder and horror of the world. That is so true. Because these words are poetry, our, images, our image and symbol, as well as meaning, our sound and rhythm, maybe above all, our passion, They set echoes going the way a choir in a great cathedral does, only it is we who become the cathedral and in us that their words echo. It's the power of poetry. 
It is the images that, and the echoes of Isaiah that teach us what we should reject and possibly more importantly, what we should want. When we imagine a different reality than what is, we align ourselves with a vision for the way that life could and should be. This is why we read the prophets. So the echo that Isaiah 11 is trying to plant within your very soul tonight is a desire for the kingdom of God. Is your heart, as you sit here, be honest with yourself, is your heart not moved for a world where the kid who is made fun of for his height is celebrated? Where the girl who had an abortion that she now lives in massive regret over is comforted and cared for? Where the person without a house is given a room in the, the greatest house, God's house? Where play and food are the primary activities? Because I want that. So what I wanna do tonight with you is I want to walk through the images that we find in this passage and let the kingdom vision, these images, echo through the cathedrals of our souls and teach us what to want, teach us what to desire. The question that I want you to approach these images with is this, what do these images teach us about this kingdom? Maybe you're new to this, maybe you're not. Wherever you're at, enter in with your imagination. What do these images teach us about this kingdom? So the first image is a stump, right? The first thing that we see in the passage, you know, there's some uh, cutting down of trees, and then all of a sudden, it says that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. There's a stump. He uses this metaphor, a stump. Um, Now, most of us have encountered a stump before, right? We all understand what a stump is, um, but what is a stump good for? What is a stump good for? Uh, When I Googled photos of stumps, because I did that, um, when I Googled them, you, you find a lot of people standing on stumps for Instagram. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed this. There are, there are various photos of people with American flags, various photos of, you know, the Navajo blanket. Those two things don't go together. Um, <laughs> haven't thought about that enough, huh? Um, you know, there's, all these, there's these various photos of people standing on stumps and, and, and doing cool things. But, like, honestly, like, what is a stump good for? They're good for nothing, by the way. That's the answer. They're good for nothing. If you want to do anything different in that spot, you actually have to grind the stump down. You have to get a machine. You have to grind it down just so that you could like replant some grass there or flowers or like whatever else you want to do. They're a nuisance. Stumps suck, right? Um, They're just in the way. But this stump, this is a different kind of stump, right? We've all seen stumps, but this one's different. This is a unique stump. In Isaiah 6, after God, um, in another passage before this one, has said that he's gonna cut down the great trees that represent these nations that are wicked, and Israel is one of those trees, oops. Um, He says this in Isaiah 6. He says, but as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so, this is weird, the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The holy seed will be the stump in the land. Where have we seen that word, holy seed? A couple other places, I mean, primarily where my mind goes is Genesis 3. There's gonna be a seed of woman who crushes the head of the serpent. Could this be the same seed? Interesting. Just like these great trees leave a stump when they're cut down, so Israel will simply be a stump. But this isn't your average stump. There's a holy seed in it. What is the lesson here that we learn from this first image? The lesson that we learn, if you're taking notes, write this down. In this kingdom, things are not always what they appear to be. In this kingdom, things are not always what they appear to be. This is a magical kingdom. 
So our, our, our second image is this. There's, there's the shoot and the branch. Um, the image shifts, and it says there's this shoot that comes up, and it turns into a branch. It says in verse one, um, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Um, in a move that like nobody could have planned for or imagined, this shoot sprouts up from a dead tree. What? Death bringing life? That, that's interesting. And a new branch begins. And notice what characterizes this branch. As we read through it, it's the spirit of the Lord is on this branch. Must be a metaphor for maybe someone. Spirit of the Lord is on this branch. And, and he's filled with wisdom. There's counsel, uh, knowledge, and fear of God. He judges by righteousness and justice. I, I love that part, actually. It says that he doesn't judge by what he sees or what he hears, but there's this fixed righteousness, this fixed justice out there. There's this absolute that he then judges by. Interesting, not just on the whim. He cares for the poor. When you read the prophets, you realize whoever this new branch is, he rules like the opposite of every ruler of Israel up to this point. He has all of the characteristics that they all lacked. Who is this? The lesson that we learn from the branch is this. This is a kingdom with a king. This vision has a ruler, has a king, who makes right and wrong accounted for and justice present righteousness and justice present. Then we see this. Look over at verse um, six. We see animals, right? Verse six, it says this. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. What? The young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. This is crazy because verse nine says, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. This is an upside down world where, where animals, they, they forget their, their predatory tendencies this is an image of peace. And I want you to notice a couple of things. This blew my mind when I was reading it earlier this week. The first thing is this. For these animals to be, to be behaving this way, they must be getting food from God or from another source, right? Because they're eating and they're sleeping together rather than eating and scared of each other. This image, God must be providing for them. God is a provider in this kingdom. Secondly, is this, notice what's emphasized in this, in this portion of the, the passage. It's play. Kids, mentioned twice, what are they doing? They're playing. Play is emphasized. Children get to play uninhibited by pain here. I was thinking about this earlier, um, that when kids play, they're single-minded. You, you can't worry about something and play at the same time. When kids play, they're single-minded. In other words, they're not distracted by other things. What's the lesson that we learn from this image? This is a kingdom without worry. This is a kingdom without worry because God is providing. That's what we learn. And then lastly, um, the banner, right? Uh, look down at verse 10. It says this, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Interesting, okay, so the root of Jesse, God 
he doesn't, he doesn't follow rules. He's mixing his metaphors. You got that right. Um, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner. So the, the image actually shifts from a root, from a branch to, to a banner. In other words, there's going to be, who, who, who is the root of Jesse? Who's the root of Jesse, right? Jesse's son, David, one of the greatest rulers of Israel. This, is, uh, this kingdom is like Davidic. Remember back then how good that kingdom was? This kingdom is similar to that. It's gonna become a banner for this kind of kingdom. The image of a banner is actually found all over the Old Testament, and it usually means something close to a shield or a sense of protected space, um, like this space is designated for peace. In this passage, it functions almost as a welcome sign, almost like welcome to the kingdom, anyone and everyone. This is yet again another passage that calls Jesus' followers to love the foreigner. Notice this, who's flocking to the banner? Go ahead, look back down at your your Bibles, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations. You know what another word for nations is? Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Yet again, a passage that calls us to love other people who are different than us because those are the people, the banner set up, who's there? All the people that are different. The lesson that we learn is that this is a kingdom of peace and inclusivity. This is a kingdom of peace and inclusivity. Um, Now, um, the thing that makes all of this kingdom vision possible is that shoot that then turns into the branch. Every hopeful image in this passage flows from that branch. So the question that the entire vision hinges upon and that you should be asking right now is metaphorically speaking, Who is the shoot? Who is this shoot that changes everything? Who is this branch? Well, what is the primary identifying factor for the branch? Go ahead and look back, 11, uh, verse one. It says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. What's the first thing mentioned about this branch? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Spirit of the Lord is on him. This theme is repeated all over Isaiah and the prophets, and this is where we primarily get the idea of a Messiah figure. In ancient Israel, when they uh, would have heard this, they would have been waiting for someone to come, someone with the spirit of the Lord on them, someone to liberate them from this cut-down forest that they've become, and someone did. Someone did. There's a moment in uh, Luke chapter four when Jesus enters a synagogue in Nazareth. He walks over to the scroll of Isaiah, he unrolls it, and this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, to set the oppressed free. And he rolls it back up and he sets it down and he says this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If we want the kingdom, we must get Jesus. Or we must give ourselves over to Jesus. The possibility of this kind of hope, this kind of beautiful vision of a kingdom like that is only found in Jesus. So what's our takeaway tonight? What's our takeaway? 
When Jesus comes onto the scene, the primary thing he preaches is this sort of Isaiah 11 kingdom. This is what he's preaching. If you had more time, we just did like a barely like a flyby. If you had more time to dig into these images, to look at the metaphors, to really study this passage and compare it to the Sermon on the Mount, the similarities would be shocking. Maybe not. They're there. This is what he's preaching. And according to Mark, here's the first thing out of his mouth. Check this out. This is what he says. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The first thing out of his mouth is what, hey, the kingdom, that kingdom, that Isaiah 11 kingdom, it's come near. Repent and believe. So two thoughts for you guys tonight around this. Repentance and belief. All of us, as we're sitting here reading this passage, when we see a vision of God's kingdom, we will be comforted at some level, and we will be confronted at another level. All of us will have that. We'll be comforted by the dazzling heights of love and joy for some of the things that we long for and love coming true in this kind of kingdom, and we will be confronted by the reality that some of the things that we love today are not celebrated in the kingdom of God if we're honest with ourselves. And so Jesus' call all the way back in the first century is still the same for us today, to repent, to repent. Because it is through repentance and belief that we enter the true kingdom. Only that way, there's no other way into the kingdom, through repentance and belief. Because all of us, you sitting here right now, you came to church with this within your bones, All of us have rival kingdoms that are our shining image of what life could or should be like in our opinion. You right now, if you were to stop and I were to ask you the question, what do you want? If I were to simply say, what do you want? You would have an answer. There would be something that you want, right? All of us would have a vision or ideal of the good life were I to ask that question to you. And all of us, we live towards these ideals. Our effort, our money, our time, all expended to get there, wherever there is for you. It's your longing that's like an autopilot, always orienting you back to your vision of the good life without even thinking about it. All of us have this. I kind of like to think of ourselves as, um, we're like human compasses. The economy, the school we went to, the places we live and shop, the people we marry, the people we want to marry, um, the clothes we wear, the TV we watch, all of these things are calibrating things to our hearts, pointing our compass in a specific area and telling us this, this is where, what life should really be like. That is where true life is found. All of these things are forming and shaping us and turning us and saying that's true north, right there. But, What if your vision of the good life isn't what God would call the good life? What if your shining image, whatever it is, if I can just do that, or if I, when I get there, then finally I'll I'll, I'll feel good. What if that's nothing like the kingdom? What if your vision of, of the kingdom has you flourishing with little or no care about the flourishing of others? That's totally me. Isaiah is clear about this meaning, the flourishing of the nations. We're confronted just by reading this, a flourishing of others. Or what if your kingdom centers around productivity rather than rest? 
hey man, I have to put 60 hours in a week because if I don't, man, I just don't really feel like alive. Man, like, it's very contrary to Isaiah 11, which talks a lot about rest, interesting. Or, or what if the vision of your good life, of your kingdom, is a life of predictability? Where the status quo is maintained, comfort from your endeavors instead of God's. Just trying to figure out how to make your life comfortable. You know, for a long time when I was younger, I'm 26 now, but when I was younger, I used to think, man, our parents, like their generation, they're all about like making sure they're comfortable and 401ks and all that stuff. Well, so it's stupid, you know? And, um, but you know what? Like all of my friends are doing the exact same thing that our parents did. It just repeats it over and over again. It just looks a little bit different. We all are after comfort. That's probably like 98% of you. That's your kingdom is comfort. It's mine. Or, or maybe you have something in your future that just needs to happen, like getting married. There's probably a lot of you who are single, who are here tonight and you're single, and you're going, if I can just get married, if I can just find someone to complete me, my missing half, that was actually Plato who came up with that, not the Bible. You don't have a missing half, okay? When Jesus comes to earth, he says, you want this vision, you, you read this and you like it, you want this vision, you've gotta give up yours. You've gotta give up your vision. A passage like this one asks us to question ourselves and find out if there is any faulty calibration within our desires. Are we, are we saying that's true north, but really God is saying no true north is that way? If our hearts are truly calibrated for the kingdom of God, what direction is your life headed? What do you believe will give your soul rest? What do you love that God doesn't? That question is so haunting. Like seriously, think about this. What do you love that God just doesn't love? Have you ever asked yourself that? It's like a horrible question. I hate that question. What do you love that God doesn't? I shouldn't have said that. Um, so, so he says repent, and then secondly he says this, believe. Believe. I wonder how many of us are, especially if you're, you've been at Bridgetown for any length of time, we're incredibly familiar with the idea that we need to surrender our kingdom to God's kingdom. And yet we find it difficult because we don't actually believe that God's kingdom is all that great. I think this is actually most of us. If you don't believe the sea is all that magical, why build a boat? I think that most of the time when we read a passage like this, we think, oh, that was, ni- was kind of like nicer than the other passages, you know, and we continue reading to meet like our Bible plan quota, right? We're like, oh, this is a nice one. Um, surprise, it was nice. Um, but what this passage exists to do, what it's supposed to do is actually slow us down. This is one of the primary roles of poetry. You can't understand it by just reading it once. You have to slow down, you have to sink your teeth in it, you have to actually think on it. And poetry exists, the passage like this exists, to make us reimagine the people and things around us in, a light, in light of what they could be, instead of what the monotonous has turned them into what they could be instead of what the monotonous has turned them into. Because one of the primary things that separates Christianity from the secular world is that we believe anything can happen. In a moment, anything can change. This is the mood, if you're new here, this is the mood that you've stepped into. This is the way that we wanna live as a church. In a moment, anything could change in your life. That when God acts, when he intervenes, children can play anywhere. People can rest. 
Justice is done, and the knowledge of the Lord covers us like water covers the sea. We become it. We embody the knowledge of Yahweh. I want that. And it is our imagination spurred on by these images that acts like a prayer for these things to happen in and around us. Imagine you're walking through Chinatown. Chinatown's becoming cooler um, slowly. Um, you're walking through Chinatown. You happen to, you, you grew up in Portland or you moved here to start a restaurant. You've always dreamed of it. You're so excited. You're walking through and you find a place that's gonna be leased. It's, it's open. It's the business before closed down. It's, a, it's the perfect space. It has like exposed brick walls. You can do so much with it. It's gonna be awesome. You look at it and you're like, you just start imagining Oh, you know, we could do this, we could do this kind of flooring and, and, and just imagine when like people are lining up to get whatever we're serving and so you call your buddy up who's an investor and you say, hey man, I got the perfect space. I think it's gonna be awesome for our restaurant that we've been wanting to start all of our lives, you know, and you're looking towards it. You're just imagining what could be done with this space. You're looking at it, you're going, we could put different, you know, this, this crazy old, you know, 18th century bar from Boston in here. I'll have it shipped here or whatever, you know. Just anything could happen. So like 90% of, of the restaurants around Portland exist. People just had imagination. They said, I just wanna go make this thing happen. And imagination's amazing because it has the ability to take our dreams and it gives us the motivation to actually do them in the, in the real world. It changes the landscape. Portland looks, I grew up here all my life. It's so different than it was 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. It's entirely changed. But what if we started to imagine, not about just, you know, that, that's all real and, and great and, and making Portland have better food, that, that's awesome. But what if we started to reimagine the people around us? And we, we took some of that imagination and we applied it to our friends or we applied it to the people that we work with. Or we applied it to the people that we're married to. Just the other day, my wife and I were on Burnside. We were walking to this, um, this like plant store to get some plants by our house and um, they had one of those signs up, you know, hey, we'll be back in five or whatever. And so we're, we're standing there waiting and this lady comes walking down the street towards us and you totally have seen this, this person before. Um, her pants are like kind of falling down and she has like a shirt that's like 10 sizes too small and her bra is showing and she's kind of missing some teeth and she has a cigarette and she's like hobbling down trying to like, you know, lug her like super heavy purse with her and like walking these super uncomfortable heels and she's walking by us. And it just looks really rough, looks rough. Um, if you live downtown, you see it often. And um, a as she walked by, she, she said something to my wife, like, oh, I like your dress or whatever. And my wife's like, oh, thanks. Um, she keeps on going by. And um, I just paused and I couldn't stop looking at this woman as she walked by and just going, I don't know, it was just this moment where like, I was like, what would she look like if she believed about herself what God believes about her? Like, what would change? I was looking at her, I was like, oh, like, if she knew, because, like, I know how much God loves me. What if she knew how much God loved her? What would change in her life? How often do we walk downtown or we walk around, we walk by these people, and we just, you know, we, we're, they're like stumps. We go, oh, nothing's ever changing. It's always the same, isn't it? I'm so guilty of this. I'm so convicted right now. Because what this passage does is it says, do you see your world around you? Imagine it in, like the kingdom of God has come. Because it has. What does Jesus say? The kingdom has come near. Repent and believe. It's that belief part that's hard for us. It's so difficult. Our imagination is a prayer because our investor is God. Our imagination 
is a prayer because our investor is God. So what do you want to see? That's my question to you tonight. What do you want to see? If the kingdom is peace and the unthinkable happening, it's inclusion, it's play, it's eating, it's where right and wrong are accounted for, what can you imagine happening? What if your neighbor understood the love of Christ? What if the guy you talked to at the grocery store was healed? What if the person who makes your coffee tasted the peace of Christ? Sometimes I wonder what God would do in our friends and neighborhoods and workplaces if we just had the imagination to pray it to happen. What would he do? So here's my challenge to you. Super concrete, super practical, here's my challenge. Take this week, at some point, take 20 minutes, put your phone on airplane mode. It looks like an airplane. It's really easy. It's a button. You flick up from the bottom. It it actually looks like an airplane. You just hit it. Nobody can contact you. I, like, live on airplane mode. It's awesome. So flick it up, airplane mode, okay? And and then what you're going to do is you're going to go, then then you're going to go down to the the timer part, right? It it looks like a timer. You're going to hit that. Then you're going to put 20 minutes on it. That's it, 20 minutes, that's all I'm asking. You put 20 minutes on it, and what I want you to do is walk through your neighborhood and imagine it differently. Walk, walk through your apartment building, walk through your neighborhood, and just, just say, this is the question you ask, God, how do you see this place? Because I, I have these monotonous eyes. Change them, how do you see this place? Help me to imagine it differently. Oh God, what would it look like for that marriage to be restored? I have um, the house that I grew up in. My parents still live in, uh, in Sherwood. And our neighbors, um, you know, like probably a lot of your friends, maybe some of your parents, uh, they graduated high school and the parents get divorced. And it turns out that there was some infidelity, uh, kind of, you know, stuff going on on both sides. Really, really sad story because, you know, I knew these people my whole life and you're just going, oh, that house is just not the same, right? And about a year ago, um, they, 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 uh, they, they started talking again. And, and they started saying, you know, hey, I think we should go back to counseling. So let's go back to counseling. Obviously, tons of open wounds. They're working through it, and, and they're trying to get right with each other, right? And they, they it's crazy, the craziest thing ever. Like, I, I looked at this house, I'm like, it's a stump. Nothing's ever happening. Nothing is ever gonna happen there. And, and, and my, I come over to my parents' house about a year ago, and she says, hey, you know, they got remarried. They got remarried. You know that house? It radiates gosh. It radiates joy. When you walk by, I don't know, it's totally different. It's totally changed. I mean, they did paint it, but, um, (laughs) but I like to think maybe it was like this, you know, symbolism, right? Like, it radiates joy. It's so beautiful. Like, this marriage restored, right? What about that kid that, you know, getting healed by the power of God's Spirit? What about the person with the addiction finally finding freedom, what would her life be like if she believed what God believes about her? To take Isaiah 11 and bring it to the people around you, this is what God wants you to do. This is what he wants to do with you. Why? Because this is what it feels like to play make-believe with your dad. In the kingdom, you get to play, and it is the, it is the only place, only place where play can become reality so long as you imagine it with God.